Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we use the brains that God gave us. Here recently, I was on uh, Eric Verthaler's YouTube channel, along with Noah Edmonds of The Eccentric Naturalist, and we were responding to a, uh, a YouTube video put out by Crossway called The Problems with Theistic Evolution. And they had a bunch of intelligent design guys uh, from the Discovery Institute, uh, a lot of the co-authors of that uh, big tome called Theistic Evolution, which J.P. Moreland had a, a big hand in, and we were we were responding to some of the things that they said to uh, about theistic evolution. And if you follow the podcast or or the blog for any length of time, you'll know that I am a theistic evolutionist. That is why I was on the <laughs> that is why I was uh, on the panel. And uh, Eric uh, gave me permission to upload it here on the podcast. And the reason I'm putting it up here on the podcast, two reasons. Number one uh, is so even more people will hear it if you uh, if you ha- are not on uh, Eric Vertaylor's. Uh, if you're not subscribed to his channel or if you've never heard of him before, well, here's your chance. Um, and uh, so it'll just give it'll just give more people more people will be able to hear it. But also because it's a very, very important topic. Evolution is a huge stumbling block to a lot of people. Um, it's the it's one of the big reasons why people leave the faith and, I, I feel that I think that a lot of Christians uh, do a disservice to their brothers when they don't even they don't even let theistic evolution be an option. And so you know this is a big apologetic issue. And so that's why I think it's important for as many people to to hear this as possible. So with all of that set up out of the way, I'm just gonna cue the int- uh, the transition music and I'm going to play that the audio extracted from that video so here we go Hello, everybody. This is Eric Virthaw92 here once again, also known as Eric the Tyrannosaurus. And I'm here with two very, very special guests. We are going to be doing a video response to a video by uh, Crossway uh, called "The Problems of Theistic Evolution." We are going to be we are going to be refuting all of their arguments that they have against theistic evolution. And so, and so Noah and so Noah and and Evan, why don't you both introduce yourselves? You can go first. Okay, yeah, I'm uh, I'm Evan Minton. I'm run a blog, podcast, and a YouTube channel, all under the umbrella term Cerebral Faith. Uh, CerebralFaith.net. It started off as a blog, uh, just a blog on a Blogspot platform way back in 2012, and it just kind of grew from there. And it's all about I talk about 
arguments for God's existence, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, the reliability of the New Testament. I talk about soteriological topics, Arminianism and Calvinism. I talk about Molinism um, and all, ki all kinds of stuff. I cover a variety of topics. In 2019, I decided to expand it from just a blog to a podcast. And that's been, I just recorded my 80th episode. And uh, since I plan on sort of, I, I plan on putting this on my podcast as well, that's going to be episode 81. It's been running two years, and a month ago started up the YouTube channel, and uh, it's been great. Uh, I've helped. I've had a lot of Christians tell me that my content has helped alleviate their doubts, figure out theological conundrums, um, and I've even brought a, a few non-Christians to Christ through my, or God brought a few non-Christians to Christ through the my writings and uh, spe specifically the podcast episode. I don't know why, but the podcast has been way, way, way more impactful than the blog writings. So it's just been really incredible for God to have used me um, in this way, and I pray that he continues to use me even more. Uh, well, mine's a, mine's a bit simpler. Uh, I started a website called The Eccentric Naturalist to deal with... Um, to deal with uh, objection, mostly objections to evolutionary biology and the evolutionary view of natural history. Uh, and it evolved from that point as I got deeper in my faith and I kind of integrated a theological aspect to it. So now the website and the YouTube channel of the same name deal with objections to uh, theism in regards to natural philosophy and to uh, evolution as it stands as a natural, uh, a natural theory of biology. And so that's kind of what my scene is about. All right, Ian, so I thought that what would make it uh, easier on my part, uh, whenever one of you have anything to say, you know, to comment on anything, if one of you could just say pause, uh, just uh, just so and then that way it makes it easier. All right. All right, and, uh, and yeah, so let's get started. Problems with the ethnic evolution by Crossway. Wait, wait, you mean like you mean like pause, like when the video is playing, or when one of you is talking, or both? Uh, like when the video is playing. If you want to make a comment, um, um, if you would just say pause. Okay. Yeah, that would help. So, all right, now let's get to the video, and all right, and. Uh, Oh yeah, and Bandili1998 asks link for the guests. Uh, I, I got it. I already dropped them in there. All right, awesome. Never mind that. All right, video now. We have something, something like an iPhone, and it is a marvel, right? A technological marvel. It's far beyond things of yesteryear that were technological marvels. You look at a steam engine, it's complex, but you look at an iPhone, and it's like mind-bogglingly complex. No one could pick up an iPhone or a smartphone of any kind and think that it was an accident, right? We know that thousands of people spent probably millions of hours on the different aspects of this, the different components that go into something like this. It might not be quite as obvious to a non-biologist how much more complex even a simple organism, a worm, Pause. a firefly is than... So my essential issue with this as a evolutionary biology major is that he's leading up to say it's like a remaking of the watchmaker argument you know 
Life is so much more complex than an iPhone. Uh, Therefore, since iPhones don't design themselves, therefore life can't design itself. But the problem is that we know the operations and machinations that that guide iPhone development, if you want to say that. You know, we know what materials are used. We know how they come together. We know what guides them, and we know what the finished product looks like. And it's the same for evolution. Nobody argues that life just complexly accidentally put itself together. We know the materials that make life. We know the natural laws that bring about life. And we know what the end product looks like and how it's sustained. So just from just right off the bat, their, their opening premise to kind of get you in is, is a little flawed. Okay. And, uh, okay. And, uh, Mr. Evan. Yeah, that, that was basically what I was going to, yeah, that was basically my cr- critique of that particular point. I have something else to say about what Douglas, uh, not Douglas Adams. <laughs> That's the hitchhikers, the guys, the galaxy guy. Douglas Axe says uh, after that about the whole unguidedness. But just for for this part, it's, it's like you know the watchmaker argument. It's kind of uh, a false equivocation because you know we know that natural selection and random mutations, or you know, random. I'm going to get to that in a little bit. Right. Uh, we we know that that can produce biological change and Scientists have inferred that if you, you know, if a little bit of change can occur in a short amount of time, a large amount of change can uh, occur over a larger amount of time. If you get, if you have microevolution occurring over millions of years, microevolution becomes macroevolution, and you know that's not just an inference. That's not just an extrapolation. When you look at the fossil record and you look at the genetic evidence, the similarities that, you know, we share with chimps and gorillas and orangutans, you know, all the atavisms and pseudogenes and endogenous retroviruses and all of the, all of the, um, what the, you know, the stuff that's left over in our DNA, it leave it paints a picture that looks like evolution. It looks like common ancestry. And so, you know, just saying, oh, well, life is just so much more complex than a phone. Therefore, you know, an intelligent designer had to actively be hands on and, and make the make a firefly. It just it's not it's not a good comparison. Yeah, definitely not. And uh, it sounds like that uh, uh, this person, that this individual is more so trying to critique neo-Darwinian evolution, which there are some Christians like who do go with the neo-Darwinian view, like such as Francis Collins and etc. But there are Christians like who don't uh, like go with the more process structuralist version of evolution, such as uh, Simon Conway Morris, inspiring philosophy and etc. And so, and so, yeah. And, and so, so yeah, that's definitely a straw man, but yeah. So, Move on with the video now. And a smartphone, but it's true. If you look at the inner workings of something as simple as, say, a firefly, you find this layer upon layer upon layer of complexity. All these things are very sophisticated in how they function. The mere fact that a firefly comes from a single cell that then develops into a firefly puts it in a completely different league. That doesn't happen with smartphones. Factories make smartphones. Fireflies come from fireflies and they come from an initial fertilized cell. It's absolutely mind boggling. We have no idea how a single cell produces an adult. These things are marvelous.
He just said, we have no idea how a single cell can produce an adult. I hope I'm just misunderstanding what he's saying because we absolutely know how cells become adults. Like we know the best explanation is from, um, I'd say evolutionary, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, evolutionary developmental biology and uh, sex, just the study of sexual reproduction. We know how a single cell takes genetic information from another cell and develop, like we know how that works. And so for him to just sit there and go, we have no idea how a single cell becomes an adult. It's like, that's, that's a non-controversial in biology. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure what he meant by that either. Yeah. Um, I, I would like, I would have to actually ask him, what did you mean by this when you said this in your video? Cause I, right. I think if we're, it, it can't. He can't mean what we're interpreting him to mean, because that that would be, that would I'm, be wrong. Like, to me, I have to be wrong. Yeah, to There's me, no way he can get up and say that. But yeah, to me, it kind of sounds like he's 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 doing like a. He, it sounds like he's doing like the infamous God of the Gaps fallacy, saying, "Oh well, we don't know how so and so thing works, therefore, you know." God. I'll tell you what I. I, God, I think but, he, what I think he's probably meaning is is is. He's talking about like that very, very first life 3.8 billion years ago. And he's saying, we don't know how that could have become an adult firefly. I don't think I, yeah, but even then I, we don't do think, I don't think he's, I don't think he's talking about the, the zygote in the, in the womb. Yeah. That's what I, I think that's probably more. And like I said, you know, that's all, what, all, that's all you have to do is just have a biological organism that changes and then, you know, natural selection has something to act on. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, evolution, as we all know, is, is that's a separate issue from a biogenesis. Yes, and it is. I, I've, I've talked, I've talked about that off the record about how I think that if a biogenesis ever occurred, you know, what we know now, and I know this is totally random, but it's, I think it's worth pointing out to for the Christians in the audience who uh, may be, you know, of the young earth or old earth, design crowd there's there's got to be so many just right precise conditions to just even have a chance for a biogenesis to occur that even if nature did it you could still make a sort of a design argument from that so it's very similar to the local fine-tuning it wouldn't be that god poofed the life into being but he divinely orchestrated through ordinary providence that you know, kind of like a scientist in a lab, how he sets up all of the conditions to be just right to get the result that he wants. You know, you can argue it, this can't be by chance. God has got to be like the lab, uh, uh, the scientist in the lab. He's got to set up all the all of the conditions. Well, it's, it's not even so much that it's that that would also bother me because we know if he's saying we don't know how like a single cell could have become a firefly. That's also non-controversial. We know the we know the natural laws that govern how matter is organized. We know the laws that would uh, that would enable that matter to become organized in an organic structure that would be self-reproducing. We know the system by which how those self-reproducing simple organisms would go on to become more complex. And we know how life could we know how life could evolve from a single cell essentially. And we've seen it in the lab. Michael Jones uh, has a great video called "Was Evolution Inevitable?" That mm -hmm. kind of touches on what Evan was saying. And it, it, it takes the idea of naturalistic quasi-random evolution and portrays it with the knowledge that we have of how life evolved and how that's uh, dictated by natural law. 
So uh, I'm not sure who this guy is, but uh, for him to for him to just say we don't know how that works, it's like that's not. We do know how that works. You know, it's it's something that's known to biologists. All right, we got a question from Vandalia nineteen ninety eight. I was wondering since since in theistic evolution, God uh, possibly guides evolution. Does does mean it's like how we breed dogs, uh, how we breed dog breeds and different plants that we eat? Well, I would say kind of. Yeah, well. That it's, it's it, like, from, from a just purely biological standpoint, uh, there's this idea called divine selection, and it's this idea that God, the natural selection is an illusion and that God's kind of behind the scenes force evolving everything. Uh, I would say, I wouldn't say that's accurate. I would say that natural selection is how he does it. He set up a a system that was able to thrive in any given uh, opportunity or instance, and because the universe has so many uh, possible ontological states, uh, it's a system that works any way the universe would turn out, and whatever uh, ends the universe would come up with in regards to sentient beings. So I, I, would I, say, I would say it's a lot like how. Different yeah, I, I, have, I have my own view on this, and I was actually going to get into this when he talks about how evolution is just, you know, unguided and random. So I'm, I'll, I was gonna, I was just gonna say, sorry, no, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just, I wanted to say, I, I'll skip this because it overlaps with what we're going to be talking about later. All righty, and so yeah, and it's, it's a recurring thing in, in his video, like that they often use the straw man fallacy, like by trying to e equivocate evolution with a biogenesis when those are two completely different things all that evolution it, it explains is that how when once when life arrived how it got so diverse it has nothing to do with like the origins of the universe whatsoever right all righty now let's get back to the video and it's it's for that reason i think that scripture keeps coming back to this idea of god challenging job is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and and spreads his wing to the south and job when challenged with something like that realizes ah, I, I said too much i'll shut up and i'll let you speak i'm uttered things which i did not understand Theistic evolution is a viewpoint that God created matter, and after that, God didn't guide or intervene or act directly to cause any empirically detectable change in the natural behavior of matter until all living things had evolved by purely natural processes. Uh, the idea that I have a problem with the way Grudem described that because it it's it's kind of right, but it's also kind of wrong. He he suggests that like God didn't intervene. Um, that's not because God is in a deistic way, kind of like turning the crank of a clock and then just letting it run. He's, and this kind of touches on Molinism that he, he saw all possible futures, knew which one would result in the greatest number of human beings being redeemed and allowed that future to unfold and didn't try to change it. But when the universe needed to be tuned to keep that course in mind, he did that, and that kind of falls back on the fine-tuning argument and how we, how much of the universe is is set up for life. So to, to say that God didn't act in a discernible way is a, a, I don't know if it's a misnomer or disingenuous or how you would describe it, but it's it's kind of like because God did all the setting up and acting prior to the universe's emerging, so we wouldn't expect to see 
an autograph like god on the bottom of every cell or somewhere in the stars like because the fact that it's there is a testament to him he doesn't have to leave clues throughout the creation because the creation itself testifies to his existence yeah i have i have a couple things to say first about the um the whole detectability issue this is something that even jp moreland has a problem with that you know if um that uh, Gruden, what Gruden complains is that if god used evolution if he did it this way the design would be undetectable in the world but what he fails to recognize is that regardless of whether or not evolution is true design would still be detectable in the universe. God would still be the best explanation of the origin of the universe, the, the Kalam cosmological argument. He would be the best explanation for the cosmic fine-tuning of the universe and the local fine-tuning, all of the just-right features of the Earth-Moon planetary system, the, the galaxy, the, the, the size of our sun, and all the stuff. That's actually what my next YouTube video is about. Um, and, I mean, so we would his handiwork would still be evident. And Fuzz Rana of Reasons to Believe, he's written a, an article recently about the argument from beauty. And John Kinson also, he wrote a whole book about the argument from beauty. And the argument from beauty does not depend on evolution being false. Maybe there is a certain aspect of detectability of God's handiwork that scripture talks about. We see this in Psalm 19 and Romans 1. But it doesn't say that complexity is how we recognize that God's behind it. I mean, for all we know, maybe maybe it's beauty. Maybe it's just the gloriousness of creation. So, we, I mean, evolution would not just make God's hand just completely and utterly invisible. Now, I do, re I do resonate with this because when I was an OEC, Old Earth creationist, Old Earth but de evolution denier, uh, that was one of the problems I had. I thought, well, I mean, if evolution is true, how do we know that God is behind creation? But as I thought about it more and more, you know, not only do you have all these arguments and all these signs of design and creation, but you have philosophical arguments that don't even rely on science, like the moral argument, the ontological argument. Um, well, no, not the digital physics argument, uh, but, uh, you know, you've got other ways to know that God exists. Um, you, you don't, you know, uh, but, uh, about the, um, about the watch, the watchmaker, um, thing, that whole, um, evolution being unguided and random theistic evolutionists do not need, uh, well, first of all, no theistic evolutionist believes that it's totally and utterly random, but he seems to be presupposing the neo-Darwinian view. But I don't even think the neo-Darwinian view is problematic if you affirm a Molinistic view of divine providence. Um, but if if you if you reject Molinism on other grounds, there's other options you can explore, like uh, process structuralism, which Eric mentioned a while ago. Inspiring philosophy has got a great video on that. But uh, as a Molinist, I would say that God uses his knowledge of what nature would stochastically do in any given circumstance. Um, and this is how the Molinist understands how guide, God guides human history. God is con in control of all things, and he orchestrates all events to his, uh, to his envisioned goals without violating the free will of human beings. Uh, God can get people to carry out his will freely by knowing how they would choose if they were in certain individual circumstances. And so God could use uh, 
the way this works out in human history, for example, take the crucifixion of Jesus. Acts chapter 2 verse 23 says uh, that it was by the deliberate plan and foreknowledge of God. Uh, Molinists would say that God knew that if Caiaphas was high priest in the first century, then he would freely condemn Jesus on grounds of blasphemy, and he would freely take him to Pilate for execution. He knew that if Pilate was, was prefect in the first century, then he would freely choose to comply with the demands of the crowd. And God knew that if Judas was born in the time and place that he actually was, then he would become Jesus's disciple for a while and would freely choose to betray Jesus to the Sanhedrin and so on and so on and so on. God, who, God knew how all of these people would behave if he placed them in the circumstances that they found themselves in. And he did so. He put them in those circumstances. And lo and behold, they, they acted exactly how he knew they would. Uh, and so in the same way, God could middle know, hey, if these hairy little apes didn't have a lot of trees to swing from, they would start walking upright in order to see predators over the horizon of the grass uh, and enable in order to carry food. And they would naturally develop bipedality, which they would pass down to their ancestors and so on. Uh, God would middle know if this species of animal were in environment Y, mutation X would occur and would be passed on. On a Molinist view of divine providence, God can guide the evolutionary process without in supernaturally intervening. And so this, this puts God totally in control. Evolution is not random, and you don't have to say, like Eric said, some people do, that natural selection is an illusion, and it's really just divine selection. God is force-evolving in everything. That was a very, very good answer. Uh, I would... I would, uh, mine will be short just so that we can go on with the video. God can act any sort of way that he wants. It could be naturally, supernaturally, doesn't matter. Since a God is all powerful, he can act any way that he wants. Man, it even says numerous times in the Bible, like that God has acted in a naturalistic way, like, like in Acts 16, like when he freed a apostle Paul from uh from a cave like by using an uh bike by using an uh, earthquake and so then god had to have known like like the exact timing of of when to uh, of when to free a apostle paul and, and and it even says in genesis in the creation account like that he let the earth bring forth like that he let the earth bring forth the plants and animals and so and then and so and then for god to act in a naturalistic way is Definitely not problematic for God whatsoever. Well, I feel like not not to bog the video down, but also the distinction between uh, what we consider supernatural and natural, I don't think is valid because for God to act, period, I would say is natural. I mean, it's it's not like, I mean, what what are we defining as supernatural? I mean, for God to for God to act to bring the universe about, for Him to fine tune the universe, for God to cause an earthquake, I would say they're all the same events. There's no less natural way of acting about it if God does it through non uh, through methods outside of the universe's normal functioning. I don't think that would classify it as supernatural because we know that there are things in the universe that operate outside of the normal functioning of the universe, like 
consciousness or quantum entanglement or numbers. You know, they're all immaterial. They all move faster than the speed of light. They all, they're things that we know that don't operate normally, but we don't classify them as supernatural. And so I think to, to say, oh, you're invoking a supernatural agent. It's like, well, not really. It depends on what you're defining as supernatural. But that was all I wanted to say. We can, we can keep going. Okay, let's carry on with the video now. God somehow set up the process at the beginning and then just let it run. That's sort of like deism. Or he was involved in the process of evolution as long as there can be no way to tell that he was involved. There's several things at stake in the debate about theistic evolution. There's a key scientific issue at stake. There's a philosophical issue at stake and there are theological issues at stake. Scientifically, the really odd thing about this debate is that at just the point when leading evolutionary biologists and evolutionary theorists are acknowledging that the main standard orthodox textbook theory of evolution known as neo-Darwinism is in serious trouble. We have Christians who are in the sciences, theologians, pastors saying, we need to embrace Darwinian evolution lest we lose credibility in the secular world. The whole claim of theistic evolution is that Christians need to get on the evolutionary bandwagon because the science is overwhelming. But the fact of the matter is, if you actually look at what's happening in the sciences, it's completely the other direction. There is an overwhelming amount of evidence now that standard neo-Darwinian evolution, the idea that random mutations and natural selection can explain everything, including us, it doesn't work. We know what evolution can do in the lab. We have... That's again, sort of disingenuous. We know that what he's painting the neo-Darwinian synthesis as uh, natural selection, random mutation. We do know how that could select so that, how that could uh, end up in humans. We can trace that lineage with nothing but those processes. And for him to go, oh, well, we just, uh, they, they can't do that. It's like, that's just factually wrong. We know that it can. Uh, he's kind of painting natural selection as a random disordered process when in reality it's a very ordered process you know the mutations are the random part but the selection mechanisms uh to quote uh jordan peterson aren't random we know what they are and we know what the selective pressures are that will result in a certain kind of organism or life form and that's where the main critiques of the neo-darwinian synthesis are it's not that random mutation natural selection don't work it's to what extent is natural selection uh operating towards an ends or a uh an a set destination, not a set destination, but a, a vague outline of a destination. That's the debate. It's not over whether or not it works or not. Yeah, well, I don't, I, I'm, my answer is kind of short in stark contrast with my previous one in which I just talked y'all's ears off about Molinism. Mm -hmm. um, I, I want, I just want to say that, yeah, everything, everything Noah said, I agree with. Plus, there's also, I notice a very, um, within both intelligent design advocates and uh, atheist popularizers like Richard Dawkins, when they talk about random mutations, they use random as a synonym for purposeless. But you can read uh, quotes from scientists, even non-Christian scientists like Francisco Ayala. Uh, you can read in uh, the uh, Deborah Harzma and Lauren Harzma's book, Origins. Um, you know, Deborah Harzma, she's the president of Biologos. That when, um, when scientists talk about mutations being random, what they essentially just mean is it's unpredictable. They just, they don't know when and where a mutation is going to take place. So, you know, uh, 
if my cat gave birth to kittens, you know, one of them could have a totally different fur color, maybe sharper claws, that, and you know, and none of its predecessors had it, and that's just no one, no, no one was able to predict that. Um, but God, God can certainly guide random events in this way. It, he can have purpose in random events. One of the Proverbs sixteen eleven says. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And lots were basically like ancient Near Eastern equivalent of dice. Okay, that was a that was a great answer. And mine will be short too. Uh, science ha has actually been helping us better interpret what the Bible says. Going back to the 16th century with the controversy with Copernicus and a movable earth. And then, um, and then again, like with Galileo and the Earth being the center of the universe, history tends to repeat itself. And you know, and I, and yeah, and yeah, and I definitely think that this is God's way of just trying to help us better understand what the Bible is actually trying to tell us. Because, be, um, it's because, like I said, history has definitely shown like that. There is definitely some history with us misinterpreting what the Bible says. And and yeah, let's let's carry on with the video. Experiments with bacteria, and it's not much. The mechanisms that the theistic evolutionists propose are themselves demonstrably not creative. Natural selection explains the survival, but not the arrival of the fittest. Does a good job awesome. of explaining things like being. That's we've already addressed that earlier in the stream. We you know evolution doesn't concern itself with. How life got here that's the job of hypotheses like abiogenesis or you know other forms of how life got here evolution just describes how life changes it presupposes life already exists so for them to go oh evolution's not a good theory because it can't tell us how life got here it only explains what happens it's like well yeah evolution isn't a creative theory it doesn't tell you how life arose that's the job of organic chemistry abiogenesis uh physics etc they're, I don't even know if it's a, it might, it might be a type of straw man, but it's their, they're using an objection that nobody's arguing from, I guess. Right. It's like the whole argument, like how a one kind can't become a, another kind. And so therefore there's no evidence for macroevolution, but yeah, that's a complete straw man of macroevolution. Um, if a dog were to one day pop out a cat, that actually would disprove macroevolution. It's because that that would break the law of monophyly. Yeah, and that's why scientists uh, call birds dinosaurs. Is because birds didn't stop being dinosaurs. They are still dinosaurs. Right. We 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 will always be eukaryotes. We evolved from primates, and we are still primates. And so and so yeah. It, but yeah, it's like a complete straw man of macroevolution. Mm -hmm. All right, let's carry on now. Things getting a little bit bigger, a little bit smaller, adaptation to environmental change, but it doesn't do a good job of explaining where you get birds in the first place. I also like to think of it as a circular. Oh, oh wait, pause, pause. Go back to get. Go back like by five seconds or, or ten seconds. Let me rehear what he just said. Yeah, adaptation to environmental change. But it doesn't do a good job of explaining where it doesn't do the job of explaining where birds come from is he 
I think he's making an allusion to the to Darwin's finches. Yeah, right? well, that's what I'm saying. Like, Speaking as a former non-evolutionist, I think what the objection here is saying, evolution can account for, you know, certain changes within a species, but it can't explain how the species, like, it can, it can explain why different birds, like, why birds come in different colors and have different beak sizes, but it doesn't explain how you got birds in the first place. I think that's, speaking as a former non-evolutionist who used to make these same kinds of arguments, I think that's pretty, I think that's what he's saying. Well, same, but I mean, when you when you go back to what Eric, I mean, Eric just said, you know, birds are, we know how birds got here. They're just descendants of dinosaurs. We know evolution tells us how they got here. And so uh, Meyer is just, presupposing that you know we we don't have an explanation for how birds got here or how uh, i guess i'd say unique life forms got here when we do we, we know how birds got here that's not a abiogenesis issue you know it's not like birds just popped up out of nowhere i guess that must be what he's arguing that they were specially created in a a, a divine instant in time but that's not what the data suggests we know evolution tells us how we got birds Evolution tells us how we got people. Evolution doesn't tell us how we got the first life. He's right there. doesn't tell us how that happened. But it does tell us how species arise and how different kinds of life arise. And so for him to be painting the, the first cell that is outside of the realm of evolution and all of the life forms that are within evolution as the same thing, that's just a little, it's like, it feels like sleight of hand. Like he's exchanging one term for another. Eric, you're muted. <laughs> Silly me. <laughs> Blonde moment. <laughs> uh, what I said was well said. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'll thank you. Very much. <laughs> <laughs> Elvis. All right, back to the first I also like to think of it as a circular argument because to get the first cell, you need DNA. And you also need RNA, and you need protein. You need DNA to make RNA to make protein, but you also need protein to make DNA. Coming up Pause. with that out of you, you absolutely can have one without the other. That her argument kind of ignores the fact that if like, and I may be I may be a little wrong on this. So if someone's more fluent in chemical biology, let me know. Uh, but the you can have an RNA existent world where RNA performs basic functions that can produce both protein and DNA. But even if you didn't have an RNA world, which is hypothesized to have existed, if the first, I guess, organic matter were either proteins or DNA, protein can behave in a way that can synthesize DNA and DNA can behave in a way that can synthesize proteins. So each one is capable of producing the other. It's like, it's like a crossover. So if you had, I've got some resources I could shoot you if you want to put them in the description, but you you can have one and produce the other, or you can have both and produce the other. So to, I'm not sure where she's getting her information, but to act like DNA and proteins are mutually exclusive and you can't have one without the other, or you can't have both at the same time, that's a that's just not true. Yeah, and that and even if she and even if she were right, like I said earlier, evolution and abiogenesis are two different things. That would. That would at most prove that abiogenesis couldn't occur. That would at right. most argue that, okay, maybe God had to specially create the first life. But once you have life there, 
then natural selection and mutations can take over and we've got the tree of life. So Which I don't even think this, about is a very, this is a very common mistake. And um, no, I know you and I, we have this uh, young earth creationist that we've gone back and forth with a lot. Mm. It's a real sticking point. They just can't separate the origin of life from the development of life. Well, I was going to say, I don't think any theistic evolutionist that I would know would have a problem with divinely created life. Like I, if, like I hold to abiogenesis because I think the data demonstrates it most, but let's say that God just spoke and the first instances of self-reproducing cells just appeared de novo out of nothing. Like they just weren't there and then they were there in a non-natural way. Evolution would still be true and theistic evolution would be consistent with that worldview. So the, it's again, they're switching out evolution and abiogenesis as though they're interchangeables when they're really not. Yeah, I myself am agnostic on the issue. I, I don't, I, I am so, when it comes to biological chemistry, I just don't know anything about it. So I'm just, I just leave that to the experts. You're muted. You're muted. Again. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to keep warning you. I'll tell you. When you see the hands, you know you're muted. This is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> so anyways, um, it's funny that you mentioned how, uh, well, not funny. It's, I guess, ironic that you mentioned like that says in the Bible that God spoke. It's because young earth creationists love to argue, oh, it's God's word or man's word. But yet, you know, if they really are going to take a Genesis as literally as they say they do, I mean, it actually does say in the creation account, I like that, um, like that God spoke all of um, like the whole universe and whatnot into existence. So, and then, and so, and then that would inadvertently mean, and, and it's funny because they don't even realize this like that, like that God's world is actually God's word too. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so, yeah. the, whole two, the whole two books thing. Yeah. Yep. Well, not only that God exists outside of time. So if you had like the beginning of time and the end of time here, God's outside, he can look at that. So when God declares, let this happen, and it happens naturally in the universe, that's identical to him speaking it into existence. You know, he is actively saying, let this happen, and it happens. But just because it's not in a non-natural, you know, genie poof, you know, just because it takes natural processes and it, it, it behaves naturally, that doesn't mean that he's not genuinely speaking it into being. Like that's an uh, I would say a non-controversial. Like I I accept that. Yeah. It's uh, not that yeah, God. Before we move speak, on, I'd like to say that, that how God spoke. The way the biblical authors, the one who actually wrote Genesis, as John Walton says in his book, The Lost World of Genesis One, this whole natural supernatural distinction, it wasn't even in their minds. For them, the only distinction was what God usually does and what God does that and what He doesn't usually do. You know. Uh, you know, the sun rising and the sun setting. Well, that was, that's God. God is, he's making that happen. But then, you know, making fit, make taking two fish and loaves and being able to feed 5,000 people, 5,000 people, well, that's something that God doesn't normally do. But they had no, they, it wasn't natural laws and God's hand. It was all God's hand. It was just, you know, um, you know, the frequency of which, oh, well, this, this is something that God doesn't normally do. Well, also, even then, there's no distinction. Like, the God making fish out of low, or I'm sorry, making, you know, feeding 5,000 out of a few fish and a few loaves, 
that's not supernatural because natural is just being defined as natural processes. That which operates outside of natural processes is still natural for the thing outside of natural processes, which would be God. So it's no different. There's no, it's natural insofar as natural laws are concerned because the thing doing the non-natural thing is operating outside of what would be defined as a natural setting. So there is no quasi preternatural definition. It's, it's a natural occurrence. All righty. That was well said. I'm processing random mutation and natural selection is just not possible. There are certain philosophical assumptions that underlie the belief in theistic evolution. The first one is that science is by far a more authoritative source of knowledge of reality than is theology or any other field. Those who have adopted this, the strong form of theistic evolution that we're critiquing have pretty much embraced and even defended methodological naturalism. Methodological naturalism is a convention that says that we must formulate theories about the world as if it were true that nature acting on its own can produce everything that we see. Okay, so this, now I, I okay, I, I acknowledge that a lot of theistic evolutionists do accept methodological naturalism when it comes to approaching science. Uh, I don't, I, I, I affirm sort of a soft methodological naturalism, which is what Fuzzrana uh, holds to. And uh, one of these, I'm not going to go into the criteria for what counts as soft methodological naturalism and hard natural methodological naturalism is. Hard methodological, gosh, that's hard to say. Hard methodological naturalism uh, means you can't em em embrace a miraculous explanation no matter what, under no circumstances. But soft methodological naturalism says we can, but it's got to be a last resort, and it's got there's got to be certain criteria that are met. Um, one of those criteria is that we've got to have exhausted the, the natural explanations. And this is what I do when I make a case for the, the, the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. Was it did he swoon? Was the body stolen? No, no. I go through all these explanations until the only one left is that God raised him to life. Uh, but there are a few other criteria, and, and I think that this is better because we don't want we don't want to open the door completely wide. Otherwise, we'll we'll be saying that you know just anything and everything is due to some supernatural agent. You know why why did that tree fall over? Oh, an angel pushed it over. You know we don't want to be saying that. But what I find funny about what Stephen Meyer says is that uh, you know, it, he and other intelligent design advocates, they seem to have this idea that if, if only evolutionists just abandoned you know, hard methodological naturalism, then they would just see how flimsy the case for common ancestry is and um, you know, they'd all be intelligent design guys. But I, as I said, I still d deny that hard methodological naturalism as I did back when I was an intelligent design guy, back when I was an old earth creationist. Um, and yet, even under the even under the operation that miraculous explanations should be allowed, I still came to embrace evolution. Why? Well, because the evidence for it is just so overwhelming. And for those in the audience, if you want a really, really good book making a scientific case for evolution, uh, from a Christian perspective, mind you, I would recommend you pick up Aaron Yilmaz's book, 
Deliver Us from Evolution. It's um, it's two ninety nine on Kindle. Um, it's called Deliver Us from Evolution. When I read Aaron Yilmaz's arguments, I I I came across not only a, a lot of evidence you know that I had already heard about, and I saw how it makes a cumulative case. You know, it's not just one piece of evidence that convinced me, but it was considering all of the evidence, all of the fossil lineages, all of the genetic evidence, all of it, and putting it in a big pile. Then I saw, oh, it started, you know, it's kind of like puzzle pieces and you put them together and you see, oh, it, you, you start to see the picture. Uh, whereas just having one piece of the puzzle probably wouldn't be all that convincing. Um, but I, I came across... One of the things that I that I asked myself when I was uh, reading Yilmaz's arguments was, does this make sense if God miraculously poofed all, all different animals into being, or does it make more sense on common ancestry? And a lot of things I, I read just didn't make sense if God created diff all of the different animals out of nothing. Some of those would be like atavisms, endogenous retroviruses, uh, shared pseudogenes, uh, these are just a few of the things that that make more sense under that under the hypothesis that evolution occurred, that common ancestry is true. That rather than you know uh, intelligent designers or miraculous creation, and and, and I'm I'm totally open to you know miracles being invoked in science. So again, if you want to read, if you want to go into these uh, arguments in far more depth than any one podcast can cover check out Aaron Yilmaz's book uh, maybe Eric can uh, provide a link to it in the show notes afterwards oh uh, yeah um, I uh, yeah I don't see why not and I actually haven't never even heard of that book so I definitely would love to check it out yeah he's kind of an un he's kind of an unknown I mean he wrote a blog post for for biologos once okay I've got uh, the two things I'd like to say before we move on is one I don't get where I don't get where Crossway gets the idea that their specific brand of intelligent design is somehow. I feel like they're operating from the assumption that they're closer to God and they're more, like they're more in line with the gospel and they're fighting theistic evolution. And as soon as they get people to realize that science can't always be relied upon and that theology is also valid, then everyone's going to come around to this weird kind of intelligent design camp. When that's not the case, as, as someone who uh, openly believes that metaphysics and, re you know, like science are two equal things, like we need authoritative philosophy and authoritative science, I hold both pretty high. I don't see science as all-encompassing or all true, and I, I accept their premise. So that, that can't be the base reason, or else we'd have the same ideas. Uh, and the second thing I find just kind of ironic, this is just funny, uh, he's about to quote C.S. Lewis and offer up lines from C.S. Lewis to kind of bolster his argument against theistic evolution, when in reality, C.S. Lewis was himself a theistic evolutionist. And I, I just think that's ironic that he does not know that. As it's he's ironic. It, it is ironic. I do, I do my Palpatine impression when irony comes up now. And yeah, and that definitely, <laughs> that's a fun example of cherry picking. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's proceed. How a lot of developments of science actually follow not just the evidence, it follows our presuppositions and the things that we bring to nature. 
And he has this wonderful passage where he talks about that nature answers the questions that we ask her. And so if our preconceptions say, think that all that exists is just matter and motion, we're only looking for material explanations and we're excluding mind from the get-go. So we're gonna get true but partial answers. You know, nature will give us those answers because that's the only thing we're looking for. His point is that if we have different preconceptions, if we're open to other ideas, we might get different answers from nature. If we are really looking for truth, then it's not persuasive to rule out some kinds of causes before you consider the evidence. The primary obligation of the scientists is to be truth-seeking. We want to have an open philosophy of science. The theistic evolutionists are content to limit the potential hypotheses under consideration to materialistic ones. And that's a big issue between us. The thing is, it's... That's not true. Uh, again, as, as three theistic evolutionists who all accept metaphysical data outside of the materialist worldview, that's just objectively not true that theistic evolutionists want to limit consideration of data to the materialistic. That's that, that's materialism, not theistic evolution. Yeah, what, what often, oftentimes when I'm reading uh, criticisms of theistic evolution, I often, I often see that they lump theistic evolutionists sort of in the same camp as atheistic evolutionists. Like they're very like, yeah, like they criticize the philosophy of materialism, which we don't we don't hold to. Well they also they also go one step further in the maybe lumping is like a common aspect of like young earth creationist intelligent design sorts because they also tend to lump uh you know any aspect of biology, geology, zoology, paleontology, astronomy, cosmology, physics Anything that does not agree with their young earth creationist paradigm, they lump it under the umbrella of evolution. So like, you know, they say evolution teaches that we came from the big bang. It's like, no, that's cosmology. That has nothing to do with evolution. Well, evolution teaches that life came from nothing. No, it doesn't. That's abiogenesis, you know, and it's like they lump theistic evolutionists and atheists into one materialistic camp. And then they lump all science that disagrees with them under the blanket paradigm of evolution it's like that's not very nuanced and that's just not true yeah it's like when kent hovind tries to argue that oh evolution says you came from a rock evolution never ever has said that you come yeah. from a rock mm -hmm. exactly unless you um, unless you're dwayne johnson's daughter <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one stake in theistic evolution the debate about it is our understanding of scripture and it's sad to say but theistic evolution actually undermines christians confidence in the authority of scripture the doctrine of creation and the general way that creation took place is at the very foundation of christianity that god created all life and that there was at least a certain discernible way he did it, theistic evolution puts all that up for grabs. And as a result, I think uh, I think we kind of mentioned this earlier when we were talking in the in the um, in Messenger about the, the that's like kind of the the fundamental idea at the beginning was flawed. You know, the idea that phones are more complicated than life. This is also flawed because that's not the Christian doctrine of creation that God acted in the natural world in a discernible way that we're able to detect that would lead us to believe it was done in a pre-turnatural way. Uh, and I think Evan would be better suited to describe 
uh, I, now don't don't go on like a four hour rant because I know you will. <laughs> but yeah. Just the the fact that the the original writers of Genesis, when they were formulating the doctrine of creation through divine revelation, they were not trying to lay out a system of detection for finding God's autograph in the natural world. They were simply attributing the operations and machinations of what we observe to be the natural world to be rested upon and grounded upon a supernatural being to them, which was God. So that there was no, this idea that Moreland's putting forward that that that's the Christian doctrine of creation, that we can find God's fingerprints in creation in a certain way is not true. Cause like I was saying earlier, creation as a whole testifies to the creator. You could make that argument from theistic evolution. I actively make that argument. From theistic evolution that it's a testament to god and shows his design uh but moreland doesn't take that into account because his premise is is opposite that which we find in the bible and yeah <laughs> you, and you you do gotta watch because i'm really passionate about about this mm -hmm. stuff. I, I could be here all day <laughs> talking about this uh but uh yeah i mean first like i said near the beginning of this uh of this stream there are ways in which we can detect God's handiwork. I mean, the Big Bang, even Francis Collins, who holds a strong neo-Darwinian view of evolution, in his book, The Language of God, he says the Big Bang screams for, it cries out for a creator. Uh, we got the cosmic fine-tuning, the local fine-tuning. We've got the we've, morality. That's it. That's a part of creation. Uh, the moral law in our hearts testifies to a moral lawgiver. Um and as inspiring philosophy very nicely shows, the holographic principle shows that the world has got to be grounded in a mind. Uh, so it's just at wor the worst case scenario is that evolution would mean that you can't make the whole, you know, life is so complex. God had to zap us into being argument, but that that's it. That's, that's, that's all. And as far as undermining the authority of scripture, well, I don't know exactly what he has in mind here. I have a feeling, and and this is because I'm a former uh, non-evolutionist myself. I used to be in the Hugh Ross camp, the Stephen Meyer camp. I was an old earther, was never a young earth creationist, but I, I did deny evolution for a long time, common ancestry. I, I think he thinks that if you're a theistic evolutionist, you must believe that gen the primeval history Genesis 1 to 11, that that's all myth. It's all story. Uh, the author just made it up to make some theological points, but real history starts with Abraham in Genesis 12. And while that is held by a lot of theistic evolutionists, it's not held by all of us. I mean, right. I don't hold it. Uh, John Walton doesn't hold it. Um, Peter Enns does. Uh, but, you know, as Joshua Swami Das not only believes that Adam and Eve were historical individuals, he believes they were created de novo. He has a like a whole hypothesis on how to synthesize that with evolution in his book, The Genealogical Adam and Eve. Uh, if you want to see my thoughts on the primeval history period, go to cerebralfaith.net. I've got a whole paper series where I go um, uh, in depth about. Uh, how to how I interpret Genesis one, two, and three. Uh, I follow a lot of. Um, it's based on a lot of John Walton's work and his The Lost World of Genesis one and The Lost World of Adam and Eve. But I also uh, take I also take uh, a page from some of Michael Heiser's work on Genesis. So it's just 
you know, if that's what he means by undermining confidence in scripture, then, you know, that's not true. Well, I also think it comes from his idea that uh, I think it comes from a hyper literal standpoint that, you know, it's the other side of, you know, cause there's that one side of the coin that you were talking about that Genesis one to up till Abraham is, is, is complete fabrication. And then from Abraham onward, it's genuine history. Uh, this is the other side of that coin. The idea that every single instant of Genesis is a hyper historical event. And I, I think we talked about this when I was on the podcast, that my view is kind of an in-between. That Genesis tells us how the world came to be, but it also tells us how to be in the world. It's a literal history that is told in an archetypal fashion. And, you know, like when I think it was Alan Watts who I first read this in, you know, when people say myth nowadays, they think of a, a falsehood, a story, a legend. In for, for most of human history, the word myth just means an image. Uh, it's a mythical story like George Washington. He's a mythical figure in regards to like Americanism and American heroism and patriotism. But he was an actual historical figure despite his mythic qualities. And so when you look at Adam and Eve, they are myth and they are archetypes just like the rest of Genesis, but that doesn't mean it's false. And I feel like people think when you attribute, because that's the thing, Genesis is multi-layered. It's, it's a literal history, it's archetypal, it's mythological, it's religious. And so people like to just keep that one layer. And if you acknowledge the other layers or try to focus on them, then they count that as an automatic rejection of the final layer. When right. in reality, like I absolutely accept a historic Adam and Eve uh, a Genesis cosmology that matches what we observe in the natural world. And I accept the mythological and archetypal facets of Genesis as having occurred. And so for him to just be like, oh, since you don't see it my way, you reject all that. It's like, that's nah, not really genuine. Definitely yeah, that, it also shows uh, a distinction between, you know, a, ver uh, a cutoff between uh, at the biblical scholars and the lay people. You know, what, what a lot of people don't understand is that when scholars use the term myth, they don't necessarily mean a false story. They don't necessarily mean a fairy tale. They mean a genre of writing. And so yeah. Genesis 1 is a myth in the same sense that the Enuma Elish is. But that doesn't mean that it's false. Right. Right. And so and then and, and so then when most people try to argue against Genesis being a myth, uh, by they say, oh, well, you're saying it's all made up. That is. I think it's safe for me to infer like that. That's a fine case of the equivocation fallacy. Um, it's whenever they use like a misleading term of a word, it's kind of like how when some YECs will argue, oh, mevolution is just a theory. But, but but when scientists use the word theory, it means something very, very different from the, means something very, very different from the everyday vernacular usage of the word theory. In science, Theory means something like that has been proven. It, it means it's been something like that has passed the uh, stage of being a hypothesis. Yeah. Well, I would say in response to that, I, if somebody said, you know, it's made up, what do you mean by made up? Well, of course it's made up. Do you think that like Adam had a diary and like kept detailed notes and then passed it on down time yeah. until we got our first written? Of course it wasn't like an eyewitness account. This was a story that was told by people I mean, Evan talks about this, you know, like it's written in Paleo-Hebrew, our, our earliest writings, I believe. And so that, that language didn't even exist. And if Adam and Eve happened thousands of years before the story was written down, of course the story was made up, but that doesn't mean it was false. 
you know what I'm saying? It 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 is a real story. It really happened. Adam and Eve were real people because it was revealed through, I would say, divine revelation in a in a naturalistic way. But to to say it's made up, like, what do you mean by made up? Do you mean just invented? Who who sits around? One, that's not what the data shows. We know where the stories come from, and we know their their verbal origins in a in a non written uh, society. And two. Who would just sit down and write that? Like someone just sat down and cracked that out like thousands of years ago. Like, how does that make any sense? Like, it, I, I would say it's a semantics issue. What do you mean by made up? Well said. It takes the core of theology and severs it from history. And so theology becomes placed in what Francis Schaeffer used to call the upper story in an area where theology isn't really about facts. It certainly isn't about things we can test or know. It's more about beliefs and feelings, but science does the hard work. It's really- It's just real quick, I don't mean to drag it on, but this is, this is the same assertion from earlier that if you accept science is valid, then you're automatically following scientism you know, the idea that science is the highest possible knowledge structure and all knowledge should be derived from science. And that's not true. We all accept the metaphysical authority of God, even though that can't be demonstrated through science. And we all follow systems of knowledge that can't be demonstrated through science. There's a reason why we believe in right and wrong and have systems of morality, even though they are in no way scientifically, I guess, defensible. They are scientifically defensible, but you don't get morals from science. And I, I think that's what he's failing to do here. He's kind of saying that if you accept theistic evolution, theology becomes more about feelings and happy thoughts and not about objective reality when that's not the case at all. Which and which and no scientist, uh, atheist or what, no scientist is ever going to is is ever going to say that science has the answers like to everything. Everything, right? Yeah. Because, I mean, we do we do see in nature, we see, like, in rats and chimps specifically, we see a kind of proto-morality. And we see the foundations for human moral behavior, which I think is a good argument for the objective nature of morality, that it's a, it's a trait inherent to the universe that any sentient beings that arose would follow a set objective moral uh, standard. And we see evidence of that in, in lower life forms. Uh, and we do get that from science, but we don't it doesn't tell us why that's better. You know, like if we get, if we get this moral ethic from other animals and we understand, okay, they understand it's more ideal to do X than Y, that doesn't tell us if X is more ideal than Y or why, even if X was better than Y, why it would be better to do X and not Y and what the consequences of those actions would be across time on the individual and the society at, at large. And so you need a metaphysic to interact with, or I would say underlie your physical worldview. And that, and as someone who holds to theistic evolution very ardently and is able to acknowledge that and is on board with that for Moreland to paint all theistic evolutionists as materialists goes back to the lumping that we were talking about earlier in the stream. But we, we can keep going. That's all I want to well, say. Well, thank you. Really about evidence. If we keep revising the Bible when science tells us we have to, then at some point we're going to end up believing that the Bible may not really be a factual book in the first place. The question is whether Christians will reject God's authority in whole areas of human knowledge, talking about where we came from and how we got here. Do we take 
the latest scientific ideas. This, I think, uh, it, it, he's presupposing that the, the Bible is intending to tell us about our material origins. And as I um, talk about, or as John Walton talks about in his book, The Lost World of Genesis 1, and as I talk about in my paper, Genesis 1, Functional Creation, Temple Inauguration, and Anti-Pagan Polemics, that's not what, that's not, that's not only what Genesis 1 is not about, that's not what ancient Near Eastern peoples in general was not concerned with. They were more, they were, they weren't concerned with asking, how did the sun get here? They were concerned with make with answering who made the sun and why did he make it? It was who who made everything and why was everything made? It was a functional orientate. They had a functional orientation mindset. So and you when you when you look at ancient Near Eastern creation myths, Genesis one included, you find a very very heavy function on who created everything and why they created everything and not so much with how long it took and how long ago it was. Well, that's also like why the intent of the author is so important because if I tell you the joke, you know, why did the chicken cross the road to get to the other side? I wasn't intending to tell you there was a chicken, there was a road, it had the desire to cross it and it crossed the road. So if you call, if you told me I was a liar for telling you that joke, because there was no chicken. Well, my intent was never to tell you there was a chicken or communicate that a chicken crossing the road with a desire to cross the road objectively existed. That wasn't the point of the joke. It was to make you, it was to be funny. And so that's kind of why, like there's a lot of biblical debate surrounding um, Jonah, uh, Job, Tobit, uh, books of the Bible that people don't think are historically accurate. They don't think they describe actual historical events, but that they describe they're moral lessons. They're like parables. And so these people would look at those arguments and say, oh, you're trying to say the story never happened and that you're rejecting biblical authority. It's like, well, no. Was the point ever to communicate there was an actual guy named Jonah who actually went to Nineveh who actually did this? Was there really a guy named Tobit who met an angel and you know went fishing and then married this girl? Was there ever really a guy named Job who went through this circumstance or were they constructing a story to communicate a true moral lesson that is true whether the story is historically accurate or not. And so to say that the story is false does not mean that the story isn't true, if that makes sense. That's a little wordy, but you can have a true story that's not makes sense. historical. Yeah, okay. I just wanted to make sure I was... Uh, yeah, and, you know, it goes back to what I said about Copernicus. You know, mm -hmm. you know, YECs usually will call us... Well, what would you say about us... Theistic evolutionists. Well, you guys are saying that God is a liar. No, 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 no. We're not saying God is a liar. We're saying that we have obviously misinterpreted and, and that we have misunderstood what he was trying to say. And uh, and it even goes to like behemoth, whether or not that was a real animal. And then I've had one YEC argue, oh, well, why would God create one animal that's real while wow, another one is uh, not real but it's like you know maybe it's not concern about whether or not if it's material but it's purpose um it's and john walton illustrates this beautifully in his book lost world of genesis one think of it like a restaurant the restaurant's there but it's just like that what makes it function is all the people who is all the people who work there and whatnot and so 
And so basically it's like that. Genesis is not a is Genesis Genesis is not an account of material creation whatsoever. It never was intended to be. They are reading modern day things onto the text, like how YECs argue, well, Behemoth had to have been a dinosaur or or Genesis had to have been material creation. But biblical authority is tied in separately to what the author intended to convey. And so if biblical authority truly, truly matters to any Christ follower, they will look into the context of what is being said in Scripture. I just want to address real quick before we move on. Uh, James, I see you in the chat. Uh, I'm totally okay with Tobit uh, being true. I believe it's true personally. I believe it's an accurate historical account. Uh, I'm just saying if it's not, if it turned out that Job or Jonah or Tobit weren't accurate, historically speaking, it would pose no problem for my personal theology. I would still see them as accurate and true stories in regards to the morals that they are communicating. So just wanted to clear that up if there was any confusion for James or anyone else in the audience. Alrighty, and uh, Evan, do you have anything else to add? Oh, no, not really. Uh, just fun fact, I don't know how, where I stand on the historicity of Job or Jonah. Um, I could ease, I could easily, more easily accept those as allegorical tales than I could the primeval history because they're a lot more disconnected from the salvation history than Adam and Eve are. I mean, for Pete's sake, the genealogies link Jesus and Abraham to Noah and Adam. That really wouldn't make, that would make, a, as, I, as I like to jokingly say, that would make as much sense as making a genealogy and tracing Betty White back to Snow White. Yeah. Job, Job is, you know, he's kind of off to the side. So that could be non-historical. That could be just meant to convey a theological lesson, and that, that would be not problematic. Alrighty. We got about two minutes left of the video, so we're almost there. So were the textbook orthodoxy of the scientific community to be our ultimate authority? And if so, then we have to make everything conform to that, including our reading not only of Genesis, but the entire reading of Scripture. Whereas if we take Scripture to occupy a position of higher authority than the opinion of the scientific community, then we do things differently. It's not that we're rejecting science. It's that we recognize that science is not the ultimate authority. One of the things that just disturbs me personally having been immersed in this issue and the debate about biological origins for now over 30 years, is that there is a kind of uncritical acceptance of scientific authority that has affected the way awesome. the church understands its own doctrine. He says that there's an uncritical acceptance of the doctrines of evolution while offering a critical critique of the doctrines of evolution. So what, what the, the fact that he is doing this actively demonstrates that his premise is false. There's a lot of pushback in the church. I, what is it, 30 to 50% of all people who profess to believe in Jesus are young earth creationists? So, I mean, that's not. it's not like evolution is uncontestedly uh, accepted. There's a lot of people who reject it. So for, for him to kind of have this answers in Genesis kind of, oh, if we let evolution in the schools they're all gonna call him behind the place you know like it's that's like an that's excellent not, accent Holy well that's what he sounds like, like <laughs> that's not accurate 
And so for for Stephen Meyer to be to be seconding that and to be parroting that that if we accept evolution, then we're all gonna you know become these these morally insane monsters. It's like that just when that's not true. true. And, and the church doesn't like uncritically accept evolution. There's a whole the fact that we're having this discussion right now, responding to them is proof that it's not uncontested. There's a give and take. And it's kind of insulting to people like me who I mean I I've read a whole bunch of intelligent design literature, older create uh, reasons to believe discovery Institute material. And I also have read a lot of evolutionist material and, you know, I struggle with, I wrestle with it, not just the theology aspect, but even the scientific aspect. Cause I'm like, okay, this guy, these, these people make some good points. These people make some good points. I ultimately ended up on the side of the evolution, but it wasn't something that happened overnight. And, so you just think, oh well, it's just we're all we're all just uh, kowtowing to what the scientific yeah. community said. I mean, you know, we can't speak for everyone. There's probably some people out there who just say, well, if the scientists say it, it must be true. But that's certainly not the case for me, and I, I don't think it's the case for anyone in this discussion. And it certainly wasn't even true of the person who convinced, who ultimately convinced me. Aaron Yilmaz, I think the reason why he was able to convince me is that if you read his book, his journey was very similar to mine, except I didn't become a scientist. Well, I mean, it, like for me, not to get too testimonial, but it, it took years. Like I, I was raised not to like bash the South or anything, but I was raised in a strict young earth creationist household. Like I didn't even question my worldview until I was in college. So for, for me, it was a very slow chipping away of like, you know, it was like, okay, I'll accept macroevolution and microevolution is the same process. It's like, oh, maybe the universe could be old, but the earth is young and all creation on earth is very young. Oh, well, maybe the universe is old and the earth is old, but creation is very recent. Oh, well, maybe the universe is old, the earth is old, creation is old, but evolution still isn't true. And it was like, well, maybe evolution is true, but God created specially within it. Okay, well, maybe natural selection, random mutation are real, but Adam and Eve were still very recent, and they were the first human beings. Well, okay, maybe that's not true. And it was a very slow progression. It wasn't just this uncontested acceptance of evolution. You, you could say you, 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 you slowly evolved into an evolutionary creationist. You could, ironically yeah. speaking. Yeah. Exactly. Well, so, and for, for Meyer to just be like, Oh, this uncontested acceptance. It's like it's not an uncontested acceptance. The people who are accepting it are accepting it based off of the data, not based off of these arguments that they get to be their own god. Which, and I mean, the whole job of a scientist is to follow what the evidence says. Exactly. And if a scientist is not going to be doing that, well, then they're obviously not a good scientist. I mean, whether if you're a scientist or not, I mean, you always should, should follow what the evidence says. Right. And, you know, it's like, what is so wrong like with following what the evidence says uh, for evolution? It's like, if evolution is true or not, it certainly does not debunk Jesus rising from the dead. And, and so if it doesn't refute Jesus rising from the dead, then it shouldn't be as big, big of an issue as, as like some of these people make it out to be. Yeah, that's I would say that that hits the nail that hits the nail right on the head because it is evidence based. That's the reason why we, we have a faith, you know, like the, the word faith doesn't mean blind faith or fideism. It means trust based on evidence. 
And so we, like, I believe the theory of evolution to be true because of the evidence. And I believe Christianity to be true because of the evidence. So for them to be like, you have to unquestionably accept intelligent design in a sense while rejecting evolution based on the, well, based on the, the faulty data, it's like, I don't see the connect there. It's like, they're, they're two different things. And, you know, and C.S. Lewis argued this, marked this in a very, and in a very transparent and a beautiful way. Human reason is actually a gift from God, while a lot of YECs will argue, oh, well, human reason should be rejected. We should always follow God's reason. And no, yes, we should follow God's reason, but but we also shouldn't forget like that God gave us the ability to reason. If it wasn't for God giving us the ability to reason and to be rational, we, I mean, we wouldn't have the technology we have today. Or we certainly wouldn't be doing this. Uh, we certainly wouldn't be doing this live stream. We certainly would have never figured out how to get all these medicines. And without human reason, we, we unfortunately wouldn't be able to like to figure out ways to fight against COVID-19. And now is definitely the time like to figure out ways to fight against COVID-19 because nobody wants to be dealing with this forever. Use the brain. Oh, exactly. I was about to say that, <laughs> but also that, that doesn't mean the, the recognition of human reason is powerful and elevated and, you know, a gift from God that doesn't mean we elevate it to the extent that it's above God and his revelation. Right. And, you know, that's kind of the message here is that if you believe in evolution, you're elevating human reason above the authority of God. And it's like, that's only true if we assume that your view is the authoritative view communicated in the scripture, which isn't true. And that your whole argument falls apart after that. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Right. Doctrines. There's an unnecessary uh, deference to scientific authority, in part because there is no consensus view right now, uh, except that neo-Darwinism is failing. Last November in London at the Royal Society, the largest, oldest, most august authoritative scientific group in the world, there was a conference that was assessing the status of neo-Darwinian theory that was called by many evolutionary biologists who have become disenchanted with the theory. We have leading people in evolutionary biology today saying that the modern form of Darwinian theory has uh, now failed to account for the most I would like to say you always, that the, you always, I always like, okay, I'm gonna, in a few seconds I'm going to raise my hand and pause and Noah, you always beat me too. It's it. <laughs> uh, all good. No, my issue is I, I'm fairly certain don't quote me on this and and someone watching don't make a response video saying you know i'm totally inaccurate because because i might be uh, so feel free to point it out in the comments or something uh i believe the conferences that he's discussing were discussing facets of the neo-darwinian synthesis and how they related to ideas like process structuralism and a non-hyper random view of natural selection they weren't discussing problems with evolution like on the whole or per se, they were discussing how the theory of evolution could be better articulated. It's not like they had a problem with evolution or they were all saying evolution's false, we need a better theory. It's it's more of a, they were trying to articulate the evolutionary position. And so for, for him to kind of paint that as, and again, I could be wrong, and I'm going to try to look it up after the stream, uh, but for him to be like, oh, they're, they're so, it's like the Discovery Institute. 
where they had all those scientists sign a paper that said, you know, we're discontent with evolution. And like most of the people who signed it believe in evolution, even though they think a better paradigm could arise or they, they feel totally unrelated to, yeah, <laughs> to, some of them were like computer scientists and yeah. like, I think uh, library scientists who had, who had no reason to be weighing in on the theory of evolution because they weren't experts in that field. And so I, I think it's a, it's a little bit of a cherry picking, a pick and choose on uh, Meyer's part. Yeah, uh, the, what I what I often say, um, yeah, neo Darwinism. There's a the way I communicate with my fellow Christians. My you know my brothers in Christ. They you know they're they're very critical of evolution. That they're they they so often conflate two things. There I like to call the that evolution and the how evolution. There's that evolution occurred. The the theory of common ancestry. We were you know. Humans and chimps are related. They both, you know, humans came from Homo erectus that, you know, came from a very hairy little ape-like creature. I uh, can't remember what it's called. I, mean, I think uh, that, uh, that, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think that you're talking about Australopithecus. Yeah, yeah. The, you know, and just the whole tree of life scenario. There's there's that, 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 that happened. And then there's theories about how that happened. There's process structuralism, there's neo-Darwinism, is did random mutation and natural selection do all of the work? Or maybe did God intervene every now and then? Or maybe maybe are there natural forces at work that we haven't even discovered yet? There's, And that's what's debated. And, and it may be true that a lot of scientists are debating a certain theory on how it happened, but they're not thinking, gosh, you know what? God probably poofed monkeys and humans ex nihilo uh, about... Six thousand years ago. That's not what they're. That's not in doubt. Well, so wait, wait, well, once at time, I lost my train of thought because I was arguing <laughs> with comments. But I was gonna, I was gonna say something to the effect that, what is Meyer? What was Meyer talking about? He was. He a, was what did Evan just say? Neo Darwinism. Um, oh, I remember that. now. Thank you. The, the, the idea. The idea that the the neo-Darwinian synthesis isn't compatible with process structuralism is, as far as I can tell, inaccurate. Because like process structuralism critiques the neo-Darwinian synthesis, but is adaptable by it. Like they could be they can be held to at the same time. Like I believe that uh, neo-Darwinian evolution in regards to random mutation and natural selection is true, but I reject the idea that natural selection is a wholly random purposeless process that's where the process structuralism idea comes in and helps support natural selection so there are two views that can be held to at the same time it's not like they're mutually exclusive it's not like i reject evolution and hold to process structuralism it's that there are two views that can be held to to help support each other where the other one fails because there are forms of process structuralism that are like every biological form is is perfectly predictable from you know, just a, just a single cell. And it's like, maybe that's not possible. And, you know, that may be the far side, just like neo-Darwinianism has its far side, but you wouldn't reject both of either one of them as being inaccurate because of it. They're, they're complementary, so to speak. Okay. Well said, man. It's an important thing that any evolutionary theory must account for, which is where does the new form, the new biological structure come from? The answer essentially is we don't know. So it seems to me a very odd time for Christians who are concerned about the science faith dialogue to be saying, well, 
we need to embrace the modern form of Darwinian theory. Otherwise, we're going to be out of date. It's just the opposite effect. Well, the head is over. Oh, okay, perfect. All right, that works. Uh, well, I, I was just going to say that the the idea that through the neo-Darwinian uh, neo synthesis that we don't know how biological forms come about, uh, we do know that. Even if, even if you didn't take in process structuralism, which I believe helps like really undergird how evolution works, uh, you could still just use um, natural uh, selection, random mutation to show how we get biological order and design. And so for him to go like, we don't know where biological form comes from, this is a good critique of evolution. It's like, that doesn't make any sense given the data. And, and yeah, and, and, and you know, and go, going back to, oh, undermining authority and whatnot, you know, this is why a lot of a lot of Christians are 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 converting to atheism or etc. Is like that they feel like that. Hey, I feel like that I have to choose either between my faith and with the science, and and then whenever I bring that up to either YECs or or, or to people like Meyer, they say, Oh, well, no, 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 you're wrong. That's not why that they're leaving the church. They are leaving the church because that, because that, oh, they're forced, it's because they're told, oh, well, you have to reject. And I'm like, well, yeah, and you want to know who's telling, telling them that? People like you. When they, when they go off to school and learn about the science, the, um, the teachers by law cannot, um, like that they cannot mess with their religious beliefs. And so when they're taught about the science, Religion is never even mentioned. All that they're doing is just telling them what the facts are. It's really that simple. And so that's a huge draw, man. And that's honestly the big reason why I got into apologetics, just so that that way people won't feel like that they have to leave their faith. I mean, it's really, really sad that people like Meyer, Ken Ham, etc., have to create this false dichotomy, make it into such a big deal like that, oh, if evolution is true, well, and then you're not a Christian. And, and they have thought of ways to do mental gymnastics, like to like to say that, oh, you're not a Christian, but yet saying, oh, well, well, basically saying, oh, well, I'm not saying you, you're not a Christian, but I'm saying that you're not a Christian. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what actually made me uh, for a long while uh, an agnostic because I had, like, I was raised Southern Baptist, I was raised Young Earth Creationist. And when I got out into the real world and I realized that those two things weren't true, it was like they were such an integral part of my faith that when I lost Young Earth Creationism and I lost being a Southern Baptist, it was like, well, I have not, there's nothing undergirding my religious metaphysical worldview and it all just fell apart. So I was like, I remember specifically telling God like over the issue, I was like, cause I was really debating atheism. And I, I remember saying, look, I'm not, I'm not going to be an atheist because I don't believe that atheism is tenable, but I don't know if you're real because everything that I've been told is about you, you know, young earth creationism. It's like, that's not true. So I know that that's not true. So I know it's possible that you're not true, but you say in the Bible to test you, you know, not to put you to the test, but to test the scriptures and to test reality and to have faith based on evidence. So I'm going to do that. And that was where I began my agnosticism. And I, I didn't really come out of that until fairly recently uh, because it, uh, to tie back into the video, theistic evolution isn't enough. 
you know, to have a scientific worldview is not enough. You have to have a metaphysical ethic that undergirds that or else you have nothing to stand on. And so it's, it's completely possible to hold to theistic evolution and to the great level of biblical authority that Christians are supposed to hold to without becoming a materialist or a closeted atheist. You know, one of the, you know, whenever I tell my testimony of how I got into apologetics and how I started wrestling with doubt, Lee Strobel's name always comes up. Case for Christ, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, it's a great book. I, it was the first apologetics book I ever read. Uh, and Lee Strobel's books are great. Uh, case for Christ, case for faith, case for the real Jesus. But he, his case for a creator kind of did me a, a disservice because in that book, which was one of the, the first few, and I also got this idea, and I don't have enough faith to be an atheist by Frank Turek and Norman Geisler, which is also a good apologetics book. It's, it's got a lot of good stuff in there, even though I think this the stuff on evolution is kind of, you know, now. Uh, but I, I got this, that I was presented with this idea, evolution, if you accept it, that that God is, is kicked off his throne, atheism is true, and, you know, we're all... That's not true. All, yeah, and so... And so I was actually kind of worried uh, about science for a while. I would not. I I was I was actually kind of afraid of science for a while. I subconsciously I didn't consciously acknowledge that at the time, but in retrospect, like I kind of had like if a scientific program came on TV, I was kind of on pins and needles, hoping, oh gosh, I hope they don't say something about evolution that might make me doubt my faith. It was terrible, and now I just have such freedom from that. I, I mean, I, I I watch everything, I read everything, and it's just like I'm not afraid of losing Jesus. Now it's just such a it's such such a great feeling. Oh, that well, is, I, and you know, I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, Noah. I, I'm out. I know exactly how you feel, Evan, because when I was a young Earth creationist, because I you used to date a girl who lived in Bozeman, and down in Bozeman was Museum of the Rockies, and of course, Museum of the Rockies absolutely does not advocate young Earth creationism whatsoever. They advocated old Earth and evolution. When I would go there as a YEC, you know... You know, I was excited to see all the dinosaurs and whatnot, but yet, you know, seeing all the stuff about an old Earth and evolution and whatnot, it it was kind of disconcerting for me. And so, um, and so now that I'm no longer a YEC, it definitely feels great to have a lot more freedom. Yeah, well, it's like a burden lifted off your shoulder. Right. Yeah. Well, that's what I was gonna say. Like with Evan, I had an almost identical experience with Noah's flood. Uh, like I, I would specifically after I had come to terms with like, after I had come to terms with uh, evolution, I kind of stopped there and I was like, okay, Adam and Eve are you know semi compatible with evolution. I'm just gonna stop there, and I would specifically avoid listening or watching anything that had to do with um, that had to do with Noah's flood because I knew that it was gonna be disproved in my head. I just knew. This worldwide flood idea is going to be disproved, and I'm going to have another part of my faith blow out from underneath it. And then I started thinking, I was like, well, that's a good thing, because if you have your idea ruined and it was false, then you can make room for a more true idea. And that's a step forward. And that's when I was like, oh, okay. And so I started watching 
a bunch of videos about Noah's Flood and all of them from like Hugh Ross and like old earth creationist models and eventually from like uh, inspiring philosophy. Uh, and, and they were all compatible, not only with the Genesis story, but actual real events in the past. And it was like, oh, this is amazing. And it, that, that became my ethic for my entire worldviews. If I, if I believe something stupid that can be taken out by the truth in a more accurate worldview, I need to allow that to happen. It's like that meme. It's like that. Uh, it's like that peanuts meme I shared recently, where one of the characters is, is shouting, "If it can be destroyed by truth, it deserves to be destroyed by truth." Yeah, that's a Carl Sagan quote <laughs> yeah. right there. I like that one. That was a very good meme. Yes. And uh, and yeah, and going back to you know what the real meaning of faith is. When I when I used that uh, like like the Greek word pistis during like my last debate. That was one of the things like that I got as criticism, like that they were saying, oh, well, you're trying to uh, advocate a language that you don't speak. It's like, well, no, I don't speak it fluently, but I can look at the context as to what it says. And, you know, this is what the word means in that language. And, and yeah, and, uh, but, you know, man, I did look at the context of pistis um and actually does mean you know like to have trust in somebody similar to when someone says i have trust in my bank i mean i mean trust your bank like for rational reasons and so it just kind of boggled my mind like that was one of the things like that i, I got as criticism for my last for my last debate but, but well, it's yeah. true i mean like i have faith that when i open this tea box there's going to be tea in there Right. Well, my faith is justified. You know, it's like that that's a trust. And so for, for people to be like, you know, faith either has to be blind or something like that. It's like, well, no, it's like that's actively true. Like faith is based on evidence. evidence. Not to not to derail the stream, but before we go, did you say you're going to school in Montana next year? Uh I actually currently live in Montana. I've lived here my uh I lived here my whole life. Uh I was supposed to go out to college this year, but because of COVID, it kind of messed things up. Mm -hmm. So currently, I I am currently now doing this program called Adult Ed. Pretty much, um, it helps you to get up to a college level. And so once I finish up that, I'm going to do my generals here where I live. Then I'm going to transfer off to Bozeman. Okay, so next year then, or something, sometime, uh, I'm planning a trip up to Montana to the guy in the comments, Groovy Biology. Uh, the oh, yeah. guy who runs that channel is a really great guy, James Brower. Uh, he and I are going to collaborate next year. We're going to go up and do a bunch of filming for my second channel because uh, we do a lot of videography and stuff there. So I'm thinking like next year sometime, all three of us should get together and we should do a big collab or something. I think that would be perfect. It would be a lot of fun. Yeah. One of the things that I'm going to go into college for is actually filmmaking. And so oh, nice. perfect. That's cool. Yeah, that would be a lot of fun. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm going for both paleontology and, and also film. Nice. Mine, because I, I have two channels. The one main one is for like theology and science. Right. I don't want that to get gunked up with like uh, the film projects I'm working on. So I just keep that to the side. Separate, right? But, yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. So we, we can talk about that more. But uh, well, thanks uh, for having us on. It was a lot yeah. of fun. I really enjoyed getting Great. to talk about that. I think we covered a lot of ground. Oh, yeah, we certainly did. And I'm, man, I'm very happy by, by the fact that we actually were able to like, like to get through the whole thing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we did. We don't have to come back tomorrow because Evan took four hours on one section or anything. <laughs> we collabed. Listen to me. We before we go, we collabed on uh, during quarantine on a meme review 
I wanted like an hour of footage that I could chop down. I ended up with like almost three because Evan would get like on a tangent and he would just start talking. And it was just like, oh my goodness. <laughs> well, it goes back to what well, it goes back to what Evan said. Evan is very, very passionate about this kind yes, of stuff. And he's very you know, knowledgeable. He knows what he's yeah, talking about. You know, and I'm I'm pretty passionate about it too, and Noah's pretty passionate about it. And, and yeah, it's it's just that what we're trying to do is like that where we're just trying to make people feel like that they don't have to choose either faith and science. And I have lost some friends over it. Like one of my Christian friends unfriended me on Facebook is because I don't take like the being made of dust part, like, like as material creation, but well, my, whole, my whole family thinks I'm going to hell for it. So, you know, you're, we're in the same boat. Yeah. I'm, I'm blessed that my family is, is cool with it. Um, mm -hmm. I even, I even disagree with my dad on eschatology and we're, we're all just, we're all just chill with each other. You know, I, I'm, I'm very blessed because I know that a lot of people are not in that position. They just, you know, you, you start talking like Matthew 24 being fulfilled in 70 AD or God using evolution and, and oh gosh, you'll, sparks will fly. Is that jelly bean? Oh yeah, I didn't even know she uh, was. I guess. I love that cat. Pets. Hey Simba. She loves both. She, she loves camera bombing. She did it. She did it the other way. She did it the other way when I had Palman on the Cerebral Faith podcast talking about Calvinism. I don't have a. She literally came in the front of this. I have. I don't have a pet. I have one friend. His name is Berkeley. Hello. Hello. No, it's me. The one who you see all these pictures of uh, pictures of me on Eric's Facebook. <laughs> so cute. Oh I swear. Um it's like that my dog doesn't know like like just how good that he has it. <laughs> He's spoiled. He's so spoiled. How, how it should be. <laughs> you're you're so spoiled, Rotten. <laughs> But yeah, um, I guess you can say he's very sympathetic. A <laughs> <laughs> oh, boom. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Well, thank you both uh, so so much for your time. Um, we definitely have do a yeah. Thank you for having me on. But yeah, um, but yeah, and so to plug into, uh, do you have any? Uh, do you, both of you have have any things that you have anything? Sorry, have anything that you want to plug in for for your channels and whatnot? Yeah, um, as far as <laughs> interpreting Genesis, uh, I think that a lot of Christians in this audience are going to be like I was. Their main hangup is is going to be biblical and theological and philosophical. Uh, I have a whole paper series. Uh, but just really just two about the whole creation thing. But I get into other things like the Nephilim in Genesis 6, uh, the Tower of Babel incident. I mean, I exegete the whole first 11 chapters. But uh, Genesis 1, functional creation, temple inauguration, and anti-pagan polemics. That's the first one. And then Genesis 2 and 3, Adam and Eve as archetypes, priests in the Garden of Eden, and the fall. Uh, if you read those two, that might help you uh, come to grips with... Um, evolution being compatible with the biblical data. Um, and also, 
I, I would recommend you read John Walton's Lost World series. Mm -hmm. that, that's what mainly, that's primarily what influenced me uh, in these papers. But like I said, I, I learned from a lot of other authors. And I took what all of these people said and I, uh, I learned it and I just kind of put it into my own product. All righty. Uh, I would say my site is more focused on if you've already come around to theistic evolution uh, or if you want to see the evidence for it, that's mainly where I operate from. So uh, if you go to the main menu, it's mostly my entire website, but if you go to the main menu, uh, you can find uh, a lot of different series that talk about a lot of different topics regarding young earth creationism and theistic evolution and uh, how I interpret the Genesis story. I've got a working model of that. Uh, if you go to the YouTube channel, you'll find a lot of similar content. The channel has a, a stronger theme of uh, Catholic apologetics as well. So if you're interested in that or discussions surrounding that, I'd go there. I'm also on uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, just go to the website. We've got a Discord. Uh, you can find all the relative links uh, over at the website. So, so oh, for, for what I plug in, it's very, it's a coincidence you mentioned this. And so... I'm the guy who, um, who owns the Glendive Dinosaur and Fossil Museum. He now knows that I'm no longer a YEC. And so he's trying to do these mental gymnastics about trying to get me like to convert back to YEC, but <laughs> without saying it. So the way he said was, hey, why don't you come down and um, um, and a challenge like our worldview? And so that's just pretty much his way of saying, hey, um, I want you to convert back to YEC, please. And that would so be Oh, and so so what I said was okay. I'll do it if it can be recorded live. You know, just so that way it could be like a walking debate, similar as to what Ken Ham um and Bill Nye did, like once when like the Ark Encounter first opened. Yeah, but he said that he wasn't interested. It's because that oh, I'm not interested in doing any live streams. But what's odd, afterwards he actually did live streams, like of like of like touring the museum. Yeah. So I think that's kind of telling us so that I'm trying, I'm trying like, like to get him. I'm, I'm trying to get him like to do that walking debate sometime, but I'll, I'll have to convince him some way. But, but yeah, I, I'm Maybe a, if you convince him if it was like all three of, uh, or like me, you and James, you'd be like, Hey, all three of us have channels. We can, you know, we'll take you out to lunch and, you know, we can set up a camera and we can just kind of have it a very chill environment. Right. Well, yeah, um, we could possibly say, like the hey, we'll be kind enough, like to pay for lunch. Yeah, and, and whatnot. If we did it that way, I think he would he would be more willing. Yeah, and uh, and yeah, and going there is going to be a, a blast from the past. It's because of when I was a YEC, I loved that place. So yeah, well, I've, there's yeah. a there's a similar museum here in Texas called the Creation Evidence Museum. When I go there, I get the same blast from the past feeling. I've always wanted to visit the Glendive Museum. I've never been able to, but uh, I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to next year getting to come up there and finally visit myself. So, well, um, whenever you and James come, I, I, um, you definitely should certainly hit me up. Yeah, we absolutely will. We can make a group chat uh, the closer it gets, or we can start texting and coordinating and figuring out what we want to do. But yeah. Um, but yeah, it definitely will have to be in the summertime. It's because you know, be probably because of our schedules and right, right. Our school at that time, and also the museum is always the most busy during the summertime. Mm -hmm. So yeah, nice we'll have to do that. As far as what else I got plugged in, I was supposed to debate Ken Hoven, but 
but that fell through. So hopefully find a new opponent, but it's going to have to be before the 24th because the 24th is when I go back to school. I will try to make as much content as I can, but you just have to understand, like, that with school, I'm going to be busy with homework. So I'll do the best that I – I'll do the best that I can. Sounds great. Uh, but, yeah, and Groovy Biology says if you're close to Bozeman, we, we could park uh, – carp. Oh, sorry. Wrong one. But, yeah. I figured it out. <laughs> but yeah, I actually live two hours away from Bozeman. I actually live in Billings. And so, so yeah, it, it, it's really not too far away. So, yeah. So, so yeah, Groovy Biology. We definitely can do that sometime. I would yeah. love that. All right. Good deal. Well, we got a lot done today. I'm, I'm glad I got to be here for it. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Yes, of course. All right. Thank you all so, so much for watching. And you all have a fantastic day. Auf Wiedersehen. Adios, amigos. And keep using the brains that God gave you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you have them for a reason. Thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. I want to give a shout out to my patrons, Andrew Melnick, Michelle Minton, Christopher Rogers, Nathan Hamilton, Edwin Liu, Jordan Hampton, Austin Long, Kevin Walker, Brandon Whitaker, and David Parrish. Thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, and I will see you next time. God bless, peace out, and until next time, keep using the brains that God gave you. Thank you.